You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. I'm uh, really looking forward to this one since we have some uh, big news to uh, break down and uh, analyze on the Geopolitics podcast. So last week, sort of surprising the whole world, um, India, out of the blue, conducted an anti-satellite test shooting down an object in low Earth orbit. So uh, where do you want to start? Well, I guess the the first place to start, and there's obviously various directions to take this, is kind of what the broad significance of this is, right? So Modi, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, announced uh, last week on March 27th that uh, this test had been conducted um, in low orbit. Um, and this makes India one of four countries so far that has been able to do this, the, the other three being the U.S., China, and Russia. Um, and so there's there's various implications for this. One is obviously domestically the fact that we're um, heading into elections in India, but there's also regional and international dimensions to this as well. We've been on this podcast and talked about India-Pakistan relations and also the, the China angle and the dynamic as well. But I guess the first place to start is, I mean, how would you conceptualize the significance of this? Because this is obviously a, a very big deal, but how should we think about this in, in broad terms? Yeah, so I think the first place to maybe start here is to break down anti-satellite weapons. Um, mm -hmm. I think I think that's actually kind of a misleading term to use in general. So anti-satellite is really a mission for a variety of weapons. There are co-orbital systems that the United States and the Soviet Union tested during the Cold War. There are direct energy weapons, uh, effectively lasers, that can, uh, and other kinds of electromagnetic weapons that can destroy or at least render satellites inoperable in orbit. And then, of course, there are kinetic direct ascent hit-to-kill interceptors. And I know that sounds like a mouthful, but that's the kind of system that India tested. And India actually, in that regard, joins a more select club than what Modi said of it being Russia, China, and the United States. It's actually just China and the United States that have used direct ascent kinetic interceptors to destroy satellites. China did it in 2007 in a highly irresponsible test that generated you know, more than 2,000 pieces of debris, some of which will remain in orbit for decades. It happened at a much higher altitude over 800 kilometers over the Earth's surface, so it will take much longer for the destroyed pieces of debris to decay from that Chinese test. A year later, in 2008, the United States used a standard Missile 3 Block 1 interceptor off of a Ticonderoga-class um, cruiser to take out a uh, decaying satellite that the Bush administration said was for safety purposes, but it was really an anti-satellite demonstration after China had conducted its own test. And it sort of showed that, you know, the core technology that we should be talking about isn't necessarily something that we would call anti-satellite weapons. It mm -hmm. is hit-to-kill technologies. Um, and India's, uh, you know, we can look at India's technology development pathway, probably going back to 1999. And here's where um, my focus has been in the past week or so is on the ballistic missile defense component of this because it turns out that hit-to-kill systems, while useful for destroying satellites, are also useful for destroying ballistic missile reentry vehicles, right? Mm -hmm. So 
you know, just to briefly describe the science here, um, a satellite in low Earth orbit is on an orbital trajectory circling the Earth. It's effectively flying over the horizon, slowly decaying, and eventually it will return to Earth. It just takes a very, very long time for that to happen. Whereas a ballistic missile is launched on a suborbital trajectory. But at the end of the day, uh, the task for any hit-to-kill system developer, a weapon engineer, is to develop an interceptor that can destroy one of these objects in in low Earth orbit or in that level of altitude in the exoatmosphere. About 100 kilometers and above is when the exoatmosphere begins outside of the Earth's atmosphere. And the United States does this and actually did do this last week when India did its anti-satellite test. The U.S. conducted a test of its ground-based mid-course defense system, which also operates similarly against um, missile uh, re-entry vehicles uh, in, uh, in the mid-course phase of flight. But so... You know, zooming out a bit from the details and the science here, the the big significance, I think, is, yes, India shot down a satellite, but is an anti-satellite capability absolutely critical for India's deterrence purposes or to warfighting purposes? Probably not. You know, Pakistan has only ever launched six satellites. It's not a space power or anything. Pakistan poses terrestrial threats to India. Mm-hmm. China has commensurate capabilities of its own. Uh, obviously, China conducted the first direct ascent uh test fire against a live satellite target in 2007, like I said, but also any kind of shooting war between the two countries where India, you know, is shooting down Chinese satellites is probably one where, you know, New Delhi's not very well positioned in general. So the military utility is kind of questionable, and the Indian rationale was really weird. They said that this was going to augment their deterrence against other countries shooting down their satellites because then they could retaliate and mm-hmm. punish them by shooting down their own satellites. So it's... It's it's a little garbled. And so my main interpretation is that this does have implications for the development of more advanced ballistic missile defense technologies in India because the technology sets are effectively overlapping. Anyways, I've I've said a lot, so I'm going to end it there and you know happy to pick up on any of that uh as as you as you find fit. No, I, I think that's that's a really important point because I think one of the aspects that's been missing from this is as you said, I mean a lot of this has been a focus on on space and anti-satellite weapons, but the overlap between that and ballistic missile defense, as you said, I mean, has implications for the regional dynamics, too. I mean, Pakistan would be, for example, very concerned about India developing a b- ballistic missile defense capability and what that means and portends moving forward. So it, it's mm-hmm. really good that we're we're kind of getting into that. Um, I guess the, the other part of this that's really interesting is you had a scoop up for us an exclusive about how actually India had conducted a previous test for this. Um, and this was something that um, you know the, that they had given a vague sense of notice to the United States and, and Washington with respect to what they were doing. But the implications of that was that this was something that uh, didn't succeed previous to this test, which was actually quite successful. So maybe it'd be, it'd be good to sort of talk talk about that perspective and and to sort of tell listeners, I mean, what's significant about the fact that there were previous uh, tests, we know of at least one that was conducted. It's not rare that um, you you need to get a number of these in order to be successful. Um, But what about that is is significant um, in terms of not just what India did, but also the relationship between the United States and India, which has been one of the trends that we've been revisiting multiple times on this podcast? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to talk about that. So yeah, this is the first podcast that we're doing after we published this article um, in which I reported that um, there was a failed Indian attempt on February 12th. So the first thing I want to say is obviously this is literally rocket science and shooting down a satellite, (laughs) which is moving, you know, it's it's moving on low Earth orbit at a speed of about Mach 28, uh, Mm -hmm. or sorry, not Mach 28, 28, 28,000 kilometers per hour. 
Um, so what you're looking at is you're striking this object that's moving at incredible speeds with an interceptor and using kinetic energy. So you have to collide. You're not using an explosion or anything like that to destroy it. So you have to basically, you know, the analogy that's used in American missile defense discussions is hitting a bullet with another bullet. Mm -hmm. So um, the fact that India failed in the first test doesn't really, you know, it's, it's unexceptional because that's simply how these things go. The United States has had failed hit-to-kill tests with missile defense systems um, all the time. It's a big reason why those systems come under scrutiny. Um, but, you know, the, the broader thing is that um, the Indian side conducted this well in advance of the proximity to the election. So also this also came before all of the... Um, you know, the major India-Pakistan crisis in February after the Pulwama terror attack that we discussed on a recent podcast and mm-hmm. the Indian Air Force's strikes on Pakistan and all that. So really, I think it it it, it shows that this test was, un, you know, not correlated to any of that. Um, Modi's decision to announce it in a speech on March 27th obviously got a lot of criticism from the opposition, which saw it as kind of a bald-faced attempt to politicize a major technical accomplishment, take credit for it, and hope that burnishes his national security credentials ahead of the elections. I think the fact that there was a failed test on February 12th challenges that narrative a little bit. I mean, we don't know if Modi would have given a speech if it had succeeded on February 12th, but at least suggests that this program was underway. Um, so yeah, so what happened on February 12th? Um, so according to um, my sources, um, the Indian interceptor um, you know, blew up after 30 seconds of flight, effectively. Um, it, it failed to uh, reach. So it wasn't the fact that India missed an intercept. It was the fact that the booster actually uh, blew up shortly after flight. And it's uncertain if they used the same uh, booster between the two tests. It's possible that you know, you know the uh, engineers with India's Defense Research and Development Organization decided to make important changes uh, between the two tests. Uh, we, we don't have enough data to substantiate that. Um, but we do have a pretty interesting set of data in the open source that really anybody can verify showing pretty convincingly that this was an anti-satellite test attempt, not what India's Defense Research and Development Organization put out there in press reports suggesting that the test was against an electronic target and involved simply a, um, a Prithvi defense vehicle, which is India's um, previously most capable known exoatmospheric interceptor to validate the ballistic missile defense capabilities of that interceptor previously. So um, how do we know that this was an anti-satellite test, uh, even you know, not relying on uh, unnamed sources or anything like that? Uh, we can look at the first fact, which is that India's civil aviation authorities issued a notice to airmen identifying an exclusion zone that matches exactly with the exclusion zone that India uh, presented on uh, March 27th when it carried out the successful anti-satellite test. So that's one important data point. And the second important data point, and I've um, I've checked this with two colleagues who are astronomers, uh, Marco Langbrook and uh, Jonathan McDowell at Harvard, um, and both of them have confirmed that Microsat-R, which was the target satellite on March 27th, was um, in its orbit, in, um, in low Earth orbit, and uh, was exactly above, or exactly at the point where it was intercepted on March 27th, also at the time of DRDO's launch on February 12th. So in order to believe DRDO's account of events that this was a Prithvi defense vehicle that was successfully tested against an electronic target, you would have to ignore the fact that the two NOTAMs match, the two notices to airmen match, and the fact that the satellite was exactly in the position during the launch where it was during the eventual successful intercept. So I think that's pretty difficult to write off. Um, right. 
As far as the U.S.-India relation go, um, relationship goes, uh, so what was interesting, uh, so the sources that I cited in the article um, are uh, within the U.S. government and are well acquainted with the military intelligence assessments that went into this um, Indian anti-satellite test eventually and, and the failed test on February 12th. And, um, and what they told me was that there was some kind of vague, quote-unquote vague, uh, Indian notification before the test occurred. Um, it seemed to me that the Indian side did not clarify that it was conducting an anti-satellite test, but Washington knew that something interesting was about to happen. So it's unclear how closely the United States observed the first test in February, but what's interesting is that we know that the United States Air Force deployed its um, Cobra Ball aircraft, uh, which monitors ballistic missile tests and space events in general, to the Indian Ocean um, to monitor the second Indian test, the successful anti-satellite test. So the U.S. probably got a very good look at the new kind of um, the new interceptor that India did successfully test on March 27th. But I think you know, on a strategic level, I think it speaks to maybe the changing nature of relations between the two sides, between New Delhi and Washington. Um, and you know, depending on what data point you want to focus on, uh, yes, India did did give Washington a heads up, but it wasn't specific to the point of acknowledging that this was a low Earth orbit anti-satellite test. And of course, the U.S. statement that came out after the test was interesting. It, it sort of, um, I think, was perceived by at least a few commentators in India as a very positive statement. Um, I didn't read it that way because the U.S. did acknowledge that it was very concerned about space debris, which is obviously a major threat with any kind of kinetic low earth orbit anti-satellite test right mm -hmm. uh, obviously india avoided the kind of criticism that came with china's 2007 test um, but we're still waiting to see what kind of debris was produced i think just earlier today before we started recording the uh, nasa administrator clarified that um, some objects had been launched to a higher orbit after the kinetic intercept and will remain um, and will remain there for much longer. India originally said that its calculations had shown that all the debris would vanish in 45 days, which sounded pretty incredible <laughs> to me. Um, but, you know, uh, I think the precedence there is probably the 2008 test, which was at a, um, the 2008 U.S. test, which occurred at a similar altitude to the Indian test. And most of that debris um, disappeared in a matter of months. And some pieces that got ejected to higher altitudes were um, finally destroyed after two years when they decayed in orbit and burnt up in the atmosphere. Right. I mean, and I think you're, you're getting at really the, the other piece of this conversation that that's really important, which is, um, you know, there's been this ongoing conversation about avoiding the weaponization and sort of a, an arms race in outer space over the past few years. Um, and part of that conversation is about, as you mentioned, you know, space debris and the international implications of these tests that are conducted by individual countries. But it's also, I mean, the, the fact that India has now entered the fray as one of several countries that have this capability, what does this tell us about ongoing efforts to prevent or, or at least manage some of these concerns with respect to outer space? I mean, we know there have been efforts at, um, by the European Union, by the United Nations to try to develop some norms around how we can all sort of manage the space. But is, is this something that um, is quite concerning or suggests that this, this effort is most likely to be quite futile? Or is there an opportunity perhaps, I mean, some people have been arguing this, including in India, that India should now actually use this opportunity that it's entered the fray to actually play a more proactive role in terms of trying to develop these norms. I mean, how should we think about that? 
Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I'll start with your question backwards, because I think there is absolutely that perception in India that if India had not conducted this test, and there had been a future international regime to develop norms around anti-satellite testing, India wouldn't have had a seat at the table. And mm-hmm. the experience that informs that it obviously is obviously India's sort of peculiar history with the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. New Delhi obviously criticizes that treaty on philosophical grounds as creating sort of two classes of states, the nuclear haves and have-nots, and India exists as a nuclear power entirely outside of the NPT regime, never having signed the treaty, much less ratified it. Um, so there is that experience for India that I think informs a lot of um, the discussion around this anti-satellite test. Um, so I wrote a piece today uh, for the Washington Post taking a stab at this uh, question, because uh, you're absolutely right uh, that uh, norms against anti-satellite testing are fraying. And I think India's test is, you know, I think demonstrates that pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that's not to say India is to blame, because if you ask sort of, you know, or if you read public statements made by um, Indian political leaders and scientists with the Defense Research and Development Organization, many of them have cited China's 2007 test. Uh, so it's the idea that, you know, proliferation begets proliferation. China right. um, was a newcomer back then to the field of direct descent, hit to kill technologies, and it's honed those technologies. Last year, it had a successful test against a medium range ballistic missile target. Um, and, you know, Beijing's just gotten a lot more proficient. And now India's entering the fray. And this is where I think we start to see this really taking off outside of the realm of the superpowers. Because in the Cold War, anti-satellite weaponry was restricted to the Soviet Union and the United States. The, uh, the U.S. shot down a satellite in 1985. And the Soviets, like I said, conducted a range of co-orbital um, interceptor tests. Um, but... Right now, I think what we're seeing is that this kind of technology is no longer restricted to the superpowers, and it will spread. I mean, um, you know, mm-hmm. Japan is acquiring SM-3 Block 2As for Aegis Ashore, co-developing that with the United States. Israel and the United States are developing um, similar technologies together. Uh, there are other countries with latent indigenous ballistic missile defense programs that could break out to an anti-satellite capability. South Korea comes to mind here, uh, potentially Taiwan. Um, even actually potentially, you know, North Korea, if it really wanted to develop uh, an exoatmospheric anti-satellite interceptor, um, might be able to do so under very specific circumstances. Um, so I think, you know, this is an, a major challenge. And I think it's a little bit too late now to develop a non-binding or binding regime that would completely ban anti-satellite tests, which is kind of what most spacefaring Um, private firms and space policy professionals recommend as the ideal solution to this because it really is the tragedy of the commons. Uh, Space isn't, um, you know, space is the ultimate commons in a way. Uh, You cannot, um, you know, anytime anybody carries out an anti-satellite test, uh, first of all, it's impossible to perfectly model the nature of the debris events that occur when the kinetic interceptor meets the intended satellite target. Uh, So you will always have unpredictability. Um, You know, I think the NASA administrator today said that some of the Indian debris has ended up at an altitude higher than the orbit of the International Space Station, which could in the future pose risks to the space station. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, if, you know, God forbid, there is some kind of accident where uh, debris created by this Indian anti-satellite test causes harm to the ISS. Obviously, you can see India's uh, reputation as a spacefaring country taking a hit. And I think some of that has already happened, right? 
something mm-hmm. that's interesting is that Planet Labs, which is a company that uh, does daily satellite imaging of Earth and has actually used um, India's um, ISRO, uh, the Indian Space Research Organization's um, launchers, to launch its payloads and actually launched a payload just yesterday using an Indian satellite, put out a statement last week after the anti-satellite test criticizing New Delhi for the test. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are these considerations, and I'm not sure what the right answer is here. What I proposed in my article for the Washington Post was that we could potentially think about formalizing um, an anti-satellite testing norm at, you know, up to certain altitudes, 200, you know, 200 kilometers and lower would be way more preferable than 300, which is what the Indian announced altitude was. It was more like 282 kilometers, but you know, that's not good enough because if we, if we do codify something like that, it could create perverse incentives for countries to develop interceptors to take out satellites at that altitude. For, for them to be mm-hmm. militarily useful, though, they would need to be capable of striking targets at higher altitudes. But once you tweak your software, tweak your interceptor, and you take out a target at 200 kilometers, scaling that up to higher altitudes is is um, is less of a complicated task than it would be before that test. Um, but obviously, you know, we don't want anybody to start thinking about taking out satellites at geostationary orbits, which are significantly <laughs> further away. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a tough problem. And I think for India, you know, we shouldn't underplay the fact that the way Modi presented this to uh, to the Indian people in his national address really emphasized sort of India's entrance into a club. It was very kind of prestige driven. You know, India is now right. among these countries. It's a space superpower. Uh, so it really, you know, does kind of play into that sense uh, or that broader conversation about India's rise. And uh, and so I think, you know, it'll be it'll be a difficult uh, problem to deal with. And New Delhi has actually been quite. Um, at least before this test was quite, um, you know, cold to efforts primarily by the European Union after the Chinese 2007 test to create some kind of non-binding international norms. So we'll have to see if that changes. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I think, you know, just just an additional point to underscore what you said before we close, um, you know, there is this ongoing debate and we've seen that with nuclear weapons and now we're seeing it with space as well, which is that, I mean, there's this ongoing conversation basically that boils down to, is it specific capabilities themselves that are the problem or is it, you know, who has them? That's the issue. That's right. And I think, and, and that's, there's never really a very easy answer to uh, that question, um, because I think it's it's often presented as one or the other, but irrespective of what the United States does or what India does, I mean, Beijing will have its own complaints about how you know norms are a facade for uh, self-interest and and geopolitics, and there'll be other countries who will argue that well, Beijing is engaging in this, so we have no choice but to actually realize our own self-interest even as we're pursuing these norms so it's you can never have it both ways so. yeah no i think i think that's a good note to maybe end on um and you know i think that's been india's kind of mo on its nuclear weapons program um obviously it has managed to secure a very unique position for itself where india has received a waiver from the nuclear suppliers group pretty much participates in most forms of ordinary nuclear commerce at increasing levels today um since its 1998 tests and that's only going to improve and that's partly because the United States sees India, the world's largest democracy, as an important factor in geopolitically balancing China. And right. so I think the American reaction to the anti-satellite test also speaks to that. And of course, we are seeing um, India kind of make the most of that as well. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that's a good note to end on on the Geopolitics podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Prashant, thanks for joining me. 
Good to be with you. Yeah, and thanks for letting me ramble. I felt like I, I talked for most of this, <laughs> but uh, hopefully, no, hopefully it wasn't too bad. All right. Um, well, for our listeners, uh, thanks, thanks as always for uh, tuning into the podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't yet left us a review on either iTunes or Google Play, uh, please go ahead and do that. It really helps, uh, helps get the word out about the show. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.